The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. Welcome to the 18th AV Podcast. Coming up, we've got reviews of the Batman Animated Series Season 2 and Hollywood Legends of Horror on DVD. And on HD DVD, we've got Batman Begins. This week's, this week's Audio Visual News. New to the UK, Blu-ray arrives courtesy of Panasonic and US manufacturer Planar launched two DLP projectors plus HD cabling from Armour and new Walkmans from Sony. There's no doubting the big news this week, high definition DVD is officially here. But it's not wearing the same brand badge we'd expected. For while most AV pundits, including me, if I'm honest, had long believed that Samsung would be the first out of the traps with a UK Blu-ray player, it turns out Panasonic has pipped them to it. The Japanese giant's DMP BD10 Blu-ray deck is available now from John Lewis and shop at Panasonic stores online for a price of around £1,200, a full week or so ahead of Samsung's BDP1000. We won't go over the specifications of the BD10 again, as we've covered them in Podcast 13. But we certainly do want to tell you about some of the hardware support Panasonic have conjured up for the BD10 in the shape of the Blu-ray-friendly SA-XR700 AV receiver. Why is it Blu-ray-friendly? Well, because it can handle the next-gen Dolby Digital Plus audio format. Received in all its original 7.1 channel glory via an HDMI cable from the BD10 Blu-ray player. What's more, the XR700 can also handle full HD 1080p video transmissions, which means it can use an HDMI output to pass on the 1080p video signals received from the BD10 Blu-ray player to a suitably talented television. The XR700 is styled to match the BD10 too, and should be available any day now for an as yet unconfirmed price. As if all this Panasonic Blu-ray activity wasn't enough, the company has also unveiled the world's first standalone Blu-ray recorders. The Digger DMR BW200 and DMR BR100 can both record HD imagery on Blu-ray discs, as well as dubbing to Blu-ray from their built-in HDD drives. Both recorders will launch in Japan on November the 15th, though there's no word on when or indeed if they might find their way to our shores. In other news this week, there's a new consumer electronics brand on the block. US-based outfit Planar, or Planner, not quite sure how you pronounce it, have revealed that it's ready to launch a range of premium home cinema products into the UK, kicking off in November with two HD-ready DLP projectors. The £2,800 PD7130 will offer a 720p resolution, a brightness output of 900 lumens and a claimed contrast ratio of 4,500 to 1, while the £4,199 PD7150 employs a larger dark chip 3 DLP chipset and ups the brightness to 1,000 lumens and the contrast to 5,000 to 1. These projectors will be followed during December by two cheaper 720p DLP models and a £900 480p model, with January seeing the arrival of the full 1080p resolution PD8110, complete with huge claimed contrast ratio of 8000 to 1. With a selection of large LCD screens and a 3-chip 1080p projector also in the pipeline, Planar is clearly very serious about breaking the US market. And from what we saw on their products and business strategy at a press briefing earlier this week, they seem better placed than most new brands to deliver on their promise. Fingers crossed. All this fancy projector talk has got us thinking about one of the most common problems experienced by people lucky enough to install a projector in their home. Digital cable lengths. Finding HDMI and DVI cables able to carry digital picture signals over the long distances required by some projection or multi-room installations can be a nightmare. But thankfully, we've come across a couple of new solutions. First, UK distributor Armour Home Electronics is bringing the Intellex HDMI Balum. 
a kit containing a send unit, a receive unit, HDMI patch cord and power supply, which can apparently shunt 1080p HDMI signals via inexpensive twisted pair cables like Cat5 over a distance of up to 45 metres. The Intellix HDMI Ballum has a suggested price of around £600 and is available now. German company Simatech, meanwhile, has come up with DVI cables able to carry video signals, including 1080p, a remarkable 100 meters. They achieve this by using their own external power supply and fiber optic transmission technology, which is impervious to even electromagnetic interference. Rather than leave you this week on the rather dry note of high-end cabling, let's wrap up with something altogether cuter. Sony's tiny new NW-S700 Walkman series, complete with built-in noise-cancelling technology. These tiny devices are no bigger than a typical cigarette lighter, yet come with 1GB, 2GB or 4GB of built-in storage, integrated FM tuners and a battery life reckoned to stretch to 50 hours. The noise-cancelling bit, meanwhile, comes from headphones equipped with built-in microphones which capture, examine and neutralise surround noise. These nifty little gizmos should hit stores in a variety of groovy colours from November. From AV Play, it's this week's DVD and HD news and reviews. Welcome to this week's DVD news and reviews. Coming up review-wise, we have Hollywood Legends of Horror Collection and the Batman series Season 2 on Region 1 DVD. And we also take a look at Batman Begins on HD DVD. And stay tuned for three massive competitions. But first, it's the DVD News and Seth Gecko. Hey there, Phil. Well, first up this week, we're going to look at A Scanner Darkly on DVD, which is coming out on Region 1 on December the 19th. This is a live-action animation movie in the same vein as... Um, Waking Life, it's actually by the same director, which is Richard Linklater. Um, we have Keanu Reeves starring as Fred, an undercover cop, who is trying to bust a drugs baron called Bob. Now, the problem with the drug is that it actually gives you a split personality, so Fred isn't actually convinced that he's not actually also Bob at the same time, which sounds really confusing. I have seen the trailers for this, and all I can say is one word, odd. That's a very good word. And two big Region 2 news stories for December the 4th. First up, DreamWorks will release Over the Hedge, the Collector's Edition, which has a anamorphic transfer, Dolby Digital 5.1, and tons and tons of extras for the kids. And also released on that day is Superman Returns, the Special Edition Disc, which comes with an anamorphic transfer, Dolby Digital 5.1 sound, and a whole host of extras. Well, Over the Hedge is a DreamWorks animation, so we're talking Shrek type uh, animation here. It does have the master of all voiceover work, William Shatner. So I wonder how that's going to actually work on a movie with him doing his usual. I must pick up the rock. And there's a green alien over there. So moving on to Superman, it's going to be a big disc for Christmas, isn't it? It's going to be a huge family-based disc for Christmas. I, I mean, you've got um, if on the UK, you've got the collector's edition. On the US, you've got a Blu-ray. You've got an HD DVD. You've got the box sets. You know, it's it's Superman Christmas basically. It's huge this year. Um, whether the movie's any good or not, the jury's out on. Some people liked it, some people loathed it. But uh, if you didn't like the uh, the remake by Brian Singer, you can always go back to the classics, which are also coming out in November. Well, myself, I'm not a big comic book fan. However, I went along to see Superman Returns and I actually enjoyed it. Now, I don't know if that means anything, but I know there's a lot of people out there who do read the comics. So was it close to, to the original origins? Uh, it was basically set after the Superman sort of two and he kind of got bored and flew off and came back five years later and Lois got pregnant and got younger and doesn't look like Margot Kidder. I'm not convinced. I'm going to have to be honest. I'm really not convinced. The only good thing I can say about it, Ruth does look like um, Christopher Reeve uncannily and Lex Luthor, Kevin Spacey, excellent casting. 
Moving on from family-based movies at Christmas to something slightly more adult, Region 1 actually sees the release of The Descent on DVD and Blu-ray. Now, yes, we've all had it over here ages ago being an English film, but bear with me, dear listener, because we are going to have a theatrical and an uncut edition on DVD, and even better, the Blu-ray version is going to have seamless branching of the two. And just to wrap things up very quickly this week, a couple of Region 2 releases that we have to tell you about and all will become clear when we go to the competitions. First of all, the highly successful ITV series created and produced by Nick Park of Wallace and Gromit fame. Creature Comforts Complete Series 2 is coming to DVD on November the 6th. And if you're a complete science fiction nut, we have Tom Baker's Ultimate Sci-Fi Quiz coming out on the 6th of November. This is a great idea for Christmas where you can gather around the TV, LCD projector and the DVD player as well and participate in a quiz on all things sci-fi. That's going to be questions from War of the Worlds, Doctor Who, Flash Gordon and Red Dwarf. And to round this month off and our news for today is the release of Family Guy Season 5 on Region 2 DVD, priced at $24.99. And 20th Century Fox are also releasing a Family Guy Seasons 1-5 to box set on the same day, which will retail for $99.99. Yeah, as Peter Griffin would say, it's freaking sweet. And the thing that, that's grabbed my attention straight away is the first episode of the new season is entitled Brian Goes Back to College, and it sees Cleveland, Joe and Quagmire dressed as the A-team. And it's this week's competition time. Stay tuned because we have three magnificent prizes to give away. The first is... A copy of Family Guy Season 5. Now, isn't it just funny that we were just talking about Family Guy there? I find it totally ironic and not at all planned or cheesy. Anyway... To get your mitts on this copy of Family Guy, just answer this real simple question. What is Lois's maiden name? To enter this competition, just go to avforums.com forward slash competitions. And while we're on the subject of Family Guy, a couple of things you may want to look at as well. First of all, American Dad versus Family Guy, the Kung Fu game. If you want to have a go on this... Just head over to AmericanDadVersusFamilyGuy.com But hang on a second, Phil. Isn't there like a Family Guy console game? Seth, it's so funny that you should mention that because we actually have a PS2 version of Family Guy to give away. Oh my god. So all you have to do is answer this very simple question. Which of the Family Guy characters is looking to gain world domination? And again, if you know the answers, head over to www.avforums.com slash competition. Did I hear you mention Tom Baker, Seth? Yes, I'm glad that you were paying attention to what I was saying for a change, Phil. Indeed, the Tom Baker science fiction quiz on DVD. And we have a copy of the game, which comes with two tickets to the memorabilia show in Birmingham. Woohoo! Ah, it gets better, because if you go on the Friday you can stand the chance to actually meet and greet Tom Baker and other stars from Doctor Who, both the old show and the new. Tom Baker, bit of a hero of mine. I think he's a bit of a hero of anyone of our age group. So, Seth, to win two tickets for the memorabilia show in November and a copy of the Tom Baker quiz, what question do we need to answer? I think we'll make this one incredibly easy for our dear listeners. And all they have to do is name the leather-bound leotard-wearing assistant from the Tom Baker years. So once again, if you know the answer to that one, head over to avforums.com forward slash competitions. And as we're still feeling generous, we have another competition. Yes, keeping in the sci-fi vein, we have not one, not two, but five copies of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, the complete series, DVD to give away. And what's that about, Seth? It's a um, spoof comedy science fiction show which was apparently made in the 80s, but it wasn't really. It was made by Channel 4 in 2004. If you like your science fiction and you like your oblique 80s references and so on and so forth, you're going to love this show. So for our lucky five winners, they only have to answer this one simple question. What was the name of the Channel 4 show that Simon Pegg had which centred on sci-fi geekdom. That is so easy, but I'm not going to give you the answer. If you do know the answer and you want to win any of our competition prizes, head over to avforums.com forward slash competitions. 
This week's DVD Reviews. And now it's time for this week's DVD reviews. And first up, we have the Hollywood Legends of Horror Collection. And this has been looked at by Chris. So, Chris, what did you think of this one? Right, well, this, this box set, um, subtitled Six Masterworks of Terror, certainly does feature a, a, certainly a couple of sheer classics. First up, we have, we have Mark of the Vampire, which is made by Todd Browning, who did the original Dracula from 1931. And this is actually a remake of... Um, a lost movie called London After Midnight. It's basically um, all the best bits of Dracula revamped, if you like. It's souped up, it's um, atmospheric, it's chilling, it's, um, it's got a lot of comedy in it, unfortunately, but it's even got Bela Lugosi reprising his role, but there's an amazing twist at the end of this one. All is not quite as it seems. And uh, it, it's, it's a really good, fun movie. Um, certainly, it, it's, it's dripping with atmosphere and, and class and the old-style vintage mood. And in fact, it's a lot more enjoyable than Dracula. Um, another good feature about that particular release is it's got a fantastic commentary track by Kim Newman, film critic and horror writer, and genre historian Steve Jones. Now, these two have been doing quite a few commentary tracks lately on um, lots and lots of vintage horror and you know, genre releases. And that one is an absolute classic. It's well worth listening to. Also, saddled with that one, you have The Mask of Fu Manchu, which is Boris Karloff as the Oriental King of Nastiness. It's a good fun movie. Again, it's very, very dizzy, very silly in places, but um, you know, it's, it's got its atmosphere, and Karloff always delivers. Um, another set within this, you have Mad Love and the Devil Doll. Mad Love starring Peter Lorre is an absolute classic. It's based on the hands of Orlac, featuring famous esteemed pianist who loses his hands in, a, in the train wreck and then gains the hands of um, a rather nasty serial killer. Obviously, nastiness then ensues. But Peter Lorre is an absolute superstar in this movie. This was his American debut, by the way. Also, you have the devil doll, Lionel Barrymore, finding the secret of shrinking human beings in an effort to get revenge on those who once incarcerated him. And another box set is Dr. X and the Return of Dr. X. Now, the original Dr. X is actually quite quite a good notorious movie it was filmed in two strip technicolor at the time and this release retains that on tv it's often ditched it but now you actually have it uh, one thing to mention about that though is that it seems to enhance the damage you can see the damage flickering away quite merrily on the on the picture now but it's still a great film return of dr x actually is, is not even the sequel to the original dr x but it's notable mainly because it actually has a very early role for um, Humphrey Bogart with a, a shock of white running through his hair um, as the nefarious Dr. X in, in the nominal sequel. A great box set though I have to say, very very enjoyable and only available in Region 1 at the moment. The picture quality and sound on all, all of these six movies has been enhanced and cleaned up and restored but obviously due to the vintage of the movies the, there is still print damage there but there it's very very acceptable apart from Dr. X, which is filmed in two-strip Technicolor, which seems to enhance the damage and the flickering lines. So what kind of score will you give that then, Chris? Uh, well, purely because I'm an absolute ardent admirer of these movies, it's going to get a 9 out of 10, because certainly Mark of the Vampire and Dr. X and Mad Love, they are absolute classics. And for them alone, it, get, it gets really high marks. And also spinning up on your DVD player this week was the Batman series, Complete Series 2, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, a follow-on to the first season, and if you ask me, it's actually a bit of a, a lesser show this time round. The animation is still totally fantastic. It's very garish and bright, and everything the old original animated show wasn't. It introduces all the main villains all over again, but the overarching story this time is a little bit lacking. We finally meet Jim Gordon at the end of this one, but somehow this series doesn't hang together quite as well or as exciting as season one. But the disc without much in the way of extras, in fact, there's nothing there at all, really, um, I would still give it a 7 out of 10. It's a, it's a great show, a nice continuation, but just a little bit lacking. And the one that all HD fans have been waiting for since they got their HD DVD players is Batman Begins, and having taken a look at this is Seth Gecko. Indeed, Phil. This is one of the major titles on high definition that people have been looking forward to, um, coupled with The Matrix and Harry Potter. It looks fantastic in high definition, Audio-wise, we have the standard Dolby Digital Plus soundtrack, but we also have a true HD soundtrack, which, to be absolutely honest with you, 
is the equivalent of listening to, say, Jurassic Park from Dolby Digital to DTS. It's that damn good. Now, most people have already seen the movie, so just to give a really quick um, recap on it, it's basically Batman Year One. Finally, we've got rid of Joel Schumacher, so now we actually have somebody who can actually tell Batman properly. Um, Tim Burton done a fantastic job with the first two movies, and Schumacher ruined it. Now we have Christopher Nolan, who most people remember from Memento, with Christian Bale as the Bat. And like I say, it's basically Batman Year One, which was written by Frank Miller. It's a very uh, similar uh, storyline. We have Bruce Wayne trying to find himself, hooks up with Ra's al Ghul, um, becomes trained in all the martial arts, and basically then decides that he doesn't really want to become part of his shadow empire, and then goes against him. We then go back to Gotham, we're introduced to the Scarecrow, which is Jonathan Crane, chaos ensues, Batman kicks ass, end of movie, and Katie Holmes is useless. Well, Batman Begins is a fantastic movie, there's no question about that. It is the, the way to kickstart the franchise all over again. Christian Bale is the definitive Batman, even as Bruce Wayne, um, he, he's, he's still fantastic because he doesn't even need the costume. We know that this guy can do, do the damage, deliver the goods, um, he embodies the, the heart and soul of Batman, there's no two ways about it. Um, it is what true Bat fans have always wanted to see. Finally, he's... Uh, his fighting skills have come to the fore. I will mention that Nolan, the way he edits the, the fighting sequences, leaves a little bit to be desired. We want to see a little bit more of the, uh, the action and the carnage taking place. Um, but it's certainly a, a noble step forward for, for the Cape Crusader. It is a, it's a great film and roll on the next one. I can only agree with Chris actually. I found it a very, very exciting film. Excellently made, beautifully shot, and most importantly, he went back to the origins of Batman. We as Batman fans were interested in how he came to be. That's what um, Frank Miller wrote about. That's what we wanted to see on the screen. And that's exactly what we got. Um, it wasn't a gadget fest, although the Batmobile was, pretty much was. But even the Batmobile was a huge tank. It was a fantastic part of the story. Really, it was a, a great film. And to see it now on high definition, as everyone really wanted to see it, is a bonus. Well, as much as I'd love to agree with Simon and Chris that this is the definitive Batman movie, I can't. I still think Batman Returns is the better movie. It has a much darker edge to the Dark Knight. But having said that, this is the second best movie from the Batman franchise. And as such, in high definition with a cracking soundtrack, cracking picture, I give it an 8 out of 10. And that's your DVD news and reviews for this week. The AV Podcast Gaming News with Ian Collin and Seth Gecko. Hi, I'm Ian Collin. And I'm Seth Gecko. And this is this week's gaming news and reviews. Okay, from my perspective, I don't have uh, a huge amount of massive news this week. It's more a case of little bits and pieces. Starting off following from what we were talking last week about Second Life and this rather surreal tele-dildonic thing that I don't want to go into much detail on. Um, but they've taken things another step further, not in such a rude way, but what's happened, Reuters, the news agency, have actually put a reporter into the game. And then the fact that they've taken a normal reporter, given him a character called Adam Reuters, it's not exactly original, and they've put him in there so we'll be able to interact with people and record news stories from within a game, which, as far as I can tell, is possibly the first of its kind. I don't know if you know of anything else like it. There's a lot of people who are getting involved in Second Life. I believe PC Format are actually one of those journalists that actually uh, got involved with Second Life and were discussing it. And there's been a lot of interactivity about that. But all I can say is I'm glad you're not getting back onto the teledildonic device. Moving on swiftly. Okay, um, following on from that, more violence than crudity, unfortunately. Just a nice thing that I liked is that um, a judge in America, there was campaigners trying to get Bully, the new Rockstar game, or Canis Canamedit as it's called in the UK, trying to get it banned in Florida. And uh, it's just nice when a judge, especially an American judge, just came back and he said, um, no, it's fine, let's release it, it's got a 15 certificate. It's not a whole lot of violence, there's nothing worse than you see on TV. Bring it out. I've got full-on respect for that guy. Do you think Rockstar are just going for the controversy angle every time now? Like, you know, Grand Theft Auto, Manhunt, now Bully, it's like controversy, controversy. You know, they say, you know, uh, any press is good press, no matter what, so... Uh... Absolutely, and this now they've got legal backing. It's fine, <laughs> go ahead, make crew violent games. Bully by Rockstar, sponsored by Judge. <laughs> 
most bizarre. I was just thinking it would be nice to get a quote from the judge on the back of the box saying okay. violent games rock. Anyway, moving on from that, we have Marvel Ultimate Alliances by Activision. Now, I'm kind of looking forward to this because you can be a superhero, you know, all the Marvel superheroes. Blade, Ghost Rider, Wolverine, The Thing, Mr. Fantastic, the lot. You can also go against some of the real cool villains like Galactus, um, Fing Fang Foom, Mephisto, Doctor Doom. So you've got you know a real good game I think that's coming out there. The only negative is they keep on putting the date back. Um, it was scheduled to release at the beginning of October, then it was scheduled for the 27th. It's now been put back yet again till November the 3rd. So hopefully, if they don't put it back too much more, we should see this early November on all the major formats. But the best part is it's coming out on the Wii on the actual release date for the Wii on the 8th of December and it has some extra features in terms of how to interact with the game using the innovative controllers. Well, the, the innovative controllers, so innovative I can't even say it. <laughs> yeah, the, the very nice clever controllers, should we call them. Okay, there's, there's one other thing, I'll try to keep this short because it's just uh, a very nice line and a really strange idea is um, Peter Molyneux, the boss of Lionhead who uh, developed games such as Fable and Peter's just like a genuine leading industry figure in all respects um, and at a, a lecture he said he was calling for more emotional involvement in games or loving I think was one of the words that he used in that uh, we should be looking now to create games that gamers don't just love but gamers can feel can be loved within as well it's a surreal concept. I don't know whether you'd like to be loved in a game. I think we're going back to the Second Life territory again very quickly. Moving slightly <laughs> over on that, I think Peter's lost the plot a little bit because I don't think that you can get any more feeling or less feeling than when you call someone a noob in World of Warcraft or anything like that. He did mention World of Warcraft as well, saying that he played it for hours in his pants. Uh, I'm easy. Okay, so with um, bits of news out of the way, um, what game have you been playing this week? What have you been getting the most fun from? Well, I have torn myself finally away from Kingdom Hearts 2 for a, a little bit, and I've actually been playing Mercury Meltdown on the PSP, which is the sequel to Mercury, imaginatively. Um, <laughs> it's actually a, a, a nice little game. I liked the original Mercury. It's a, a, a bizarre little sort of arcade puzzle game where you're a blob of Mercury and you have to go around a maze, change colours, open doors, and generally whiz about. It's kind of... Super Monkey Ball meets sort of, I don't know, a, a bit of cerebral thought, I suppose. Um, this is uh, the sequel. It's more of the same. The graphics have been totally overhauled. It's much more of a, a cartoony, cell-based look um, rather than the uh, standard look from the original Mercury, which is very sort of industrial kind of looking, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, more of the same. If you loved Mercury, you'd love this. If you didn't like Mercury, just don't bother. It's, it's, it's very much, you know, it's still very much an addictive game. I was playing it um, constantly on the on the train uh, on my daily commute. Is so it addiction is, in a nice way, not in an angry way? It's not an addiction in an angry way. My PlayStation is still intact, which is a good thing, because I really wouldn't want to throw that across the train. Yeah, really good game, good fun. Uh, thanks to the guys at Shop2.net for sending it to me, and I'm going to give this 8 out of 10. Okay, well, that sounds like a whole lot of fun. Um, this week I've been playing Godfather on the 360. Uh, it's been out for a while on um, uh, most of the other consoles, but it's come on the 360, and I figured I'd give it a look to see how much it's improved over the uh, old, or old, over the original Xbox version. Um, I have to say they've done quite a good job. They haven't changed the, the core of the game too much, it's, it's still the game based on the movie, which it ties in quite well with the movie in the fact that the story follows the, the film through as if it would, um, but your kind of your role works around it, so all the little scenes from the film, like the whole horse's head scene, you're the guy in there who actually helps put the head into the bed and take on all these other small little roles. Um, but they've polished it up nicely on the 360, I think. They've kind of tweaked the visuals a little bit, as you'd expect. But they've also ironed out a few little glitches, a few little bugs that annoyed people on the Xbox. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know uh, whether many people are still up for another kind of free-roaming adventure after the overdose we've had in uh, recent months. But, um, no, I had a lot of fun with it. It is addictive. Not quite in the way that Mercury might be, and I've got to have one more go. It's addictive in the way that just got to take down one more building I've got to take over one more business um, it's it's very addictive stuff I I need to keep playing it some more and it's starting to pain me 
So it sounds like you're enjoying that. Uh, what kind of score are you going to give that one? Um, well, it's it's flawed, so I can't give it a really high score. It's still got a few little annoying bits and pieces in there, but I'd give it a, a very healthy 7 out of 10. So that wraps it up for this week. I'm Seth Gecko. I'm Ian Colin. And that was your games, news and reviews for the week. Brought to you by AV Forums and AVPlay.com. This is the AV Podcast. Jason Bradbury. As many of you that listen regularly to this podcast will know, I also host the Gadget Show on UK TV station uh, 5. And each week I let you in on a little behind-the-scenes action. This week, uh, quite interesting really, uh, we've been doing something we call the 500 Quid Challenge. My fellow presenter Susie Perry and I were challenged to go out and buy ourselves each a computer. Uh, we had a budget of £500, but the difference was I had to build mine from scratch, whereas Susie had to buy something off the shelf. So I went on to uh, a few websites that I've used in the past uh, when I used to build my own PCs, which I've got to tell you I haven't done for several years. And it brought back quite a, a few memories, especially when I was stood there after about three hours with the, the uh, motherboard manual in my hand trying to work out where the various jumpers went. I mean, I could assemble, you know, the hard stuff, like the, um, you know, I, I glued the, uh, the, the processor in place. I put the heatsink device on top of the processor. All the stuff that's really quite tricky, I had no problems doing. Uh, the thing that did get me was actually getting the light to come on, on the front of the case, because that was all about getting the right jumpers. And I, I have to say, these manuals that come with motherboards are, are impenetrable to anyone other than IT professionals. So it did take, it took me about three hours all in, including putting the, the operating system on, which I was quite pleased with. Um, and for £500, of course, what, what I specialised in, what I saved most of my budget for, was a standalone graphics card. I went for an, an NVIDIA card with 256 meg of dedicated RAM on it. And the reason I did this was because this was all about a series of tests that we were going to perform once we'd got our two machines into the same room. Uh, and the test turned out to be quite interesting. One test was uh, encoding video. I think it was an AVI clip at broadcast quality, which we had to encode for a 512 meg broadband uh, signal. So a, a, a Windows media file, basically. And um, that was one of the tests. The other test was we had to do a Chrome effect in Photoshop. And the other challenge was a game. We had to play uh, a 20-minute dual um, multiplayer on, what did we use? Advanced Warfighter, Ghost Recon uh, by Red Storm. And uh, so, there, oh no, and there was another really cool test which we came up with at the last minute, which was the crash test, where I was basically charged with the job of trying to figure out how to crash a computer. And essentially, what I did was all of the aforementioned tests, and then I started the game in the background, and then I got even more filters going in Photoshop and encoded a second video concurrently with the first and what was fascinating uh, was the stark difference between the performance of the two machines that essentially cost exactly the same amount of money but one being hand built as opposed to the other one built in a factory and bought off the shelf as always on this podcast not only am I I'm not going to tell you the result I'm not allowed to tell you the result but what I, I have given you is a kind of heads up for those of you in the UK who get to watch the result which is on I think it's on next week on the Gadget Show, 7.15 Mondays on Channel 5. Um, and it, it was really, really interesting. The, the result, I think, for anyone that's into computers or technology in general, was astonishing, actually, uh, and really worth watching. So that's what I've been up to this week on the Gadget Show. Uh, for more behind-the-scenes gossip, tune in to our next AV podcast. This is the AV podcast. And now it's time to drop in on Steve May, editor of Home Cinema Choice magazine. So, Steve, what's been happening in the world of AV journalism this week? Well, Phil, it's been a week of mixed emotions. First, my Sky HD box died with a fried hard drive. And then, even more galling, my TiVo passed away. Now, for those that don't know, TiVo was the original PVR. It was introduced before Sky Plus, but it was ahead of its time. No one knew what a PVR was, and most people were happy recording to videotape. And as a consequence, it, it died a commercial death. But there were lots of things about TiVo which remain great even today. And that probably explains why it's been so hugely successful in the US. It does things that no other PVR does. It will guess what programs you like to, to watch and it will record them for you by scanning for metadata in its EPG. It will find interesting tidbits at the back of one of the channels that you never view record them and they're just sitting there waiting for you. It's a great trick and no other PVR 
as far as I'm aware, can do it. I love my Sky Plus box, so what, what were the differences between that and Sky Plus? Well, the interface was just much more intuitive. It was very easy to use. It had cool keyword searches. You could uh, get it to look for genres of programming. You could tell it exactly what you wanted or like to watch via uh, a series of thumb-up, thumb-down uh, options on the uh, remote control. And it was very, very intuitive. Uh, my entire family uh, had no problem using it at all. And while Sky Plus is very straightforward, it doesn't engage you in the way that Ativo engages you. So for it to die was a, a, a real pain. Now, I thought I'd had my lot with it because it's been out of circulation for a few years. But apparently there is a company called Pacelink, pacelink.co.uk, who offer repairs and upgrades to the TiVo hard drive for, for those few users that are still out there. Apparently, they tell me my, my TiVo motherboard has died, and uh, it'll cost 184 quid all up to have it repaired or replaced. Now, I've got a bit of a dilemma. Should I pay that amount of money to keep my TiVo going, or should I just give up on it? I wonder what our listeners would suggest. So, from one dying technology, I understand you have two new bits of kit in the office this week. Yeah, that's the upside of my week. Um, coming into the Home Cinema Choice office, we finally got hold of the first Blu-ray players from Panasonic and Samsung. These are the UK spec machines. and uh, I'm really excited. It's going to be great to actually get to play with them. I know the Samsung BDP-1000 really well because I've had an American machine for some time. But this will be the first chance I've had to get close to, to the big Panasonic. Now, this is going to retail uh, an even higher price than the Samsung. It's going to be around about £1,200. Uh, and by all accounts, is quite a terrific piece of equipment. So I'm really looking forward to playing with that. We've even got some uh, of the early Blu-ray movies, which are coming out from Sony Pictures, uh, to play on it. And it's going to be fascinating to it into a 1080p panel and see exactly what it can do. So what kind of tests are you going to give the, the new machines for the magazine reviews then? Well, both the Samsung and the Panasonic are DVD players and CD players in their own right, and we have a whole bank of equipment which enables us to, to uh, judge how good they are playing DVDs and CDs. So we'll obviously do that. Um, but more importantly, of course, is the performance with... Um, uh, the HD discs and for that really it's going to be down to finding the best panel we can get uh, and playing them side by side to see what they actually offer us uh, the Samsung is a known quantity its 1080p picture is a little bit suspect uh, but the Panasonic um, should be terrific and that's what we'll all be looking at very carefully and playing devil's advocate will you be mixing HD DVD in there? Uh, not just yet because we don't have the UK spec HD DVD players they're, they're on route from Japan apparently uh, we should have them in a week or so but uh, it's running behind Blu-ray in terms of uh, its scheduling uh, it'll be very interesting to compare them we do have the American specification first-generation HD DVD machines, but we're not going to compare them with those particularly because UK consumers won't even get to see those American machines. They're going to get uh, the second-generation models. So we will compare them when they turn up, but it's going, to be, it's going to be very interesting. And from a personal point of view, which side of the fence do you think you're going to fall on? Well, at the moment, uh, with my experience, just of the American machines, I, I'm... At, at the moment, I'm edging towards HD DVD as the better proposition. Uh, the entry level for the machines is obviously cheaper. I'm very excited by the Xbox 360 drive being only 130 quid. I think that's going to open it up for a lot of people. And frankly, the software looks better and is more tempting in terms of titles. Um, so from an American point of view, I think HD DVD is looking very strong. That might not be the case in Europe. Uh, it's obviously going to be decided ultimately by software. And while we've had quite a lot of feedback from the studios supporting Blu-ray in the UK, there's been virtually nothing coming back on upcoming HD DVD releases uh, over here. So uh, it could be a reversal of what we've actually seen in the US. Uh, so we'll be looking very closely at those. Obviously, the early titles coming out from Sony Pictures and Fox 
aren't particularly fantastic. I mean, I don't really want to see Stealth again. I've seen it once, and that was once too many times. Um, and I do suspect that some of the titles were chosen purely because they thought they were going to be selling them to uh, teenagers who had PS3 machines. That clearly isn't going to be the case until next year. So, so the title selection isn't great, but frankly, there's nothing coming from uh, HD DVD supporters. So we'll have to wait and see how that shakes down. I think regardless of what format um, uh, early adopters choose, whether it's um, Blu-ray or HD DVD, I think now's a very good time to keep an eye open on the, uh, the DVD, HD DVD camp. That format has had many vocal and powerful friends in Hollywood, but that might not be the case in Europe, and that might be a big factor in what happens next. Steve, that's excellent, and we'll catch up with you again to find out what's been going on at Home Cinema Choice Towers next week. Thanks, Steve. Take care. The AV Podcast Interview of the Week with Phil Hinton. And now it's time for part two of our interview with Pioneer. We just want to point out that this information was provided by Pioneer on the 19th of September 2006, and that the information enclosed within the interview is subject to change. Therefore, Pioneer recommends all its customers to look at www.pioneer.co.uk for the latest information on all the subjects covered. For the second part of the interview, I started by asking Pioneer what problems they had encountered with Sky HD boxes used with their plasma screens. Well, I think um, I think first of all, you know, obviously we've had uh, plasma screens that have got HDMI inputs on them because the issue's been with uh, Sky boxes connected uh, to our screens via HDMI. Um, I mean, the nature of the of the issue, which again, I mean, is obviously well documented, obviously on the forum, there's plenty of discussion about it. Pioneer have actually started up our own uh, Pioneer blog, um, linked to our website, um, again, to communicate with our customers about the issue. But um, we became aware of the issue in June, with literally the month that uh, they started installing boxes. Um, and uh, initially... The first, time, the first one we ever saw was that an HD banner, an error message is uh, presented onto the screen, um, which suggests that the screen is not HDCP compliant, and uh, hence you've got no picture. Uh, in the worst case scenario, that actually can affect the HDMI inputs and mean that your player might not work as well. And again, there are people obviously via our blog phoning us and telling, or, or telling us about these issues. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, obviously Pioneer as I suggested at the very beginning of this interview, um, you know, why people like me have stayed so long, I think, over the years, is because we do see that they are a very straight and honourable company. And at the end of the day, it's the interest of the customers that interest us the most and the enjoyment they get from the product. Um, and we take it very seriously, hence the blog, which we set up at uh, the beginning of July to, to communicate with our customers. Um, obviously, we've then had to communicate with Sky. Uh, and obviously, in turn, uh, and again, really, this is of no consequence to a customer because at the end of the day, if they bought a product, they expect it to work. Uh, and obviously, if it doesn't, then that, the butt stops with the person or the manufacturer of the product that made it. But we then obviously had to go off and speak to um, you know, other parties that are involved in this chain, possible chain of events and calls. And obviously, initially, that meant conversations with our partner Sky and with uh, their um, manufacture their box, which in this case is Thompson, um, and obviously that's that, that's where it started. Uh, again, it's difficult for customers to appreciate that it's hard enough communicating within a, one big organisation. I'm sure anybody that works in a big office knows that uh, one thing at the bottom floor can end up saying something else at the top. To communicate on a level then within one Japanese organisation globally with Tokyo and then obviously with Sky, and then obviously with another European manufacturer, with the time zone differences alone, uh, is a mammoth task. Um, the communication as it went on, as I say, as we started to understand and get more feedback, and we're talking about still relatively low numbers of people with the issue um, compared to the amount of boxes and screens that are out there, because we've been making, this seems to affect four, five, and six G products, our fourth, fifth, and sixth generation product. Um, and basically now we're at a point where we've announced uh, there were some obviously uh, from the blog we can see that obviously and we can understand that some customers get frustrated they, they'd like an instant answer and we'll say with something as complex with this as this because obviously there's so many parameters that to it where the problem could 
possibly be, whether it's uh, something wrong with broadcast, whether it's a box, whether it's uh, transmission, whether it's connection, whether it's the panel, and indeed all of those products within that, that, that line have obviously all met the requirements they've got to meet to communicate with each other under the specifications that they've got and the agreements that they've got. Um, to then, I would say, have to sort of back calculate that and work out where a problem is is very, very difficult. But we've spent exhaustive hours uh, working and communicating, and I'll say, I think it's a credit to A, the customer and obviously uh, their patients, but B, a credit to the manufacturers, all of them, uh, Sky, everybody that's involved with it, and how they've dealt with it and try to communicate and get on with each other to do it. And again, the customer is probably not interested, but you can imagine, even down to the point of you know, leg legalities, you know, the, we're talking about companies with proprietary technologies here, uh, with components within them that are made by chip manufacturers with proprietary technologies that have got legal non-disclosure agreements between them and what they, you know, limits to what they can openly put, give another manufacturer to help them. Um, it's very complicated. At the point we're at now, we've actually announced a, a countermeasure. Um, so, unfortunately, the actual root cause um, still really evades us. And, uh, and, and that's something we obviously go on to try and find out exactly what is causing this problem. But we've announced a countermeasure for 6G. Again, you've got to consider over the time scale exhaustive testing to make sure that this, you know, what this countermeasure we're applying, does it seem to stop this? Does it appear to be doing what it appears to be doing? And it so far looks good. They're trying to roll that out at the moment. So that means us obviously um, getting the information out to our service centers and our service people and getting the infrastructure and logistics behind it to roll that out to the 6G customers and start updating their, their boxes where we can. And uh, with the 5Gs and 4Gs, again, um, a little frustrating, obviously older product. We've pointed out that we will honor the product, although it's out of, out of warranty, uh, because we see that as a clear obligation to the, from us to the customer um, if there is an issue. And uh, we're trying again to get a, a, a countermeasure arranged in a way that we can implement for those products. But again, these being older products, obviously they're slightly different engineering. They're, they're obviously generations apart, particularly four to six. There's a big difference in the actual heart and the way in which the machine works and how it's developed over that, that sort of two, three year period. So finding the countermeasure is actually different for each one. So in itself, a, a mammoth task. Uh, we're hoping to roll out countermeasures for the others, obviously in the next, next few weeks, if not uh, certainly the next few months, uh, so we can implement those changes as well. And again, I must point out, and one bit you know we've got to try and include with this and not edit, <laughs> is uh, the fact that that doesn't by any way mean, as you've seen from our own press releases on our website, mean that we accept liability uh, or an admission of liability on the part of Pioneer for the fault. We don't, because unfortunately we don't exactly know what that fault is yet that's causing the issue. Obviously, um, AV Forums was a platform for, for these issues uh, when, mm. when they were raised by Pioneer customers. How useful was the interaction between Pioneer and the AV Forums, and how did that help with your customer relations? Sure. I, mean, I think to be fair, I mean, obviously, you know, the AV Forums, are, they're a great platform for the consumer. They're a great opportunity for the consumer to communicate with like-minded people. Um, I think, as with anything, you get unfortunately good and bad information. And unfortunately, in a forum society where it is obviously... Um, you know, people don't know who they're talking to or who they're dealing with. There's lots of different angles and reasons why things can be said that are said on the forums. But at the end of the day, when it comes to an issue like this, with obviously a fault, to be fair, our first obviously reaction is when when our customer liaison and our service people uh, receive phone calls from consumers around the problem. Um, we often, if if it looks like it's obviously an issue, it's a problem that not just one poor person's got, but a number of people have got. Then obviously the next level would be really to look at sites like the AV4 and others to be fair to see look is this isolated is this just is this just a one you know could it be a one-off serial number batch of plasma screens that have got some weird problem or you know something wrong or is it is there more to it is is it wider than that and obviously the forum's a good indicator although again I'd imagine still a snapshot of AV enthusiasts in this case it was obviously uh, it was it was worth it because most of those enthusiasts regard the pioneer quite highly the plasma screen so uh, arguably quite a few <laughs> <laughs> they've got pioneer screens but uh, so yeah the answer is yes obviously it, it helps to have that communication that's why we did the blog we wanted to make it clear that look we're, we're not a company you don't answer the phone or or hide behind uh, things 
and, and we're very straight and honest. If we had honest answers to, and could tell exactly what was going on and why, uh, then, then we would. If we, if we were allowed to do so and in the position to do that, we would. Um, and that was what the blog was set up for, was a two-way communication between us and those customers. It's still ongoing now. You know, there's, there's conversation on there now. This is the strange thing with this phenomenon. You know, I've got colleagues who've got these screens. I've got one at home. Um, you know, we've got some people who have had it from the first day they had their Skybox, and we've got other people who didn't have it for three months and had it the first time yesterday. And this is the problem with it. It's 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 not only uh, it's a bit like taking something to a service agent and and having a, a, a sort of a non-repetitive, uh, infrequent fault. Uh, it's very hard to pin down. But in this case, it's, there's so many parameters to it and so many different angles to it. It's uh, it's a big can of worms. Moving on from from Sky, we'll move on to mm-hmm. your amplifiers. And obviously, Pioneer is one of only a handful of manufacturers who still continue with the high-end integrated amplifiers. Will this continue to be your strategy in the future, and would you ever consider releasing um, standalone processors for the high-end market? Sure. I mean, yeah, we've, obviously we've been making uh, AV amplifiers quite a long time. Um, again, in the time that I've been at Pioneer. Uh, high-end ones, well, we, we were planning a new high-end product. In fact, there was one piece written up in Home Cinema Choice uh, last year following uh, their, their, their normal annual trip to out to Japan to look at new things in Japan. And uh, I think they met with our amplifier engineers out there and, uh, and were sort of uh, tantalized with uh, the talk of a new amp, a new top-end amp, called, which we've named Sasano, which is actually a, a Japanese uh, mythological character who is a dragon slayer, so a god. And, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, it demonstrates the fact that they, they believe this amp is a, an amp slayer. It's going to be a big top-of-the-range, uh, fully-equipped uh, AV amplifier. Um, but alas, it was due out at the end of this year. And obviously, we're, we're all probably aware now that we've got uh, new high-definition audio formats uh, coming with these new Blu-ray formats and HD DVD formats. And that, uh, indeed, you know, we're going to enjoy new quality surround sound to go with that. Um, to make the most of that, you're going to need an interface to do it. And, of course, that looks as if it will be, obviously, HDMI. Um, and to make full use of that, it will probably be HDMI 1.3. And the chipsets, well, they're not available yet. Generally speaking, they're not available yet. So I don't think uh, you'll see any big top-end AV amps yet with uh, HDMI 1.3. And partly the reason that we chose, actually, to, to wait for the introduction of our big Sasano amp was based upon you know, the right technology to go with it and not, not launch it months early, months later to regret it because we should have waited. Isn't it? So it's delayed it a bit, but our commitment's there to that product. We've got a whole new range of AV amplifiers this year um, from entry-level products, um, the VSX516, right the way up to replacements now for the AX2 and the AX4, um, new models there, ASI and um, the AS models uh, with component switch, uh, with HDMI switching, uh, scalers built in, uh, 1080p compatible, iPod cables uh, supplied with them with an iPod mode that you can connect your iPod uh, straight to the amplifier, look at your uh, playlist and that on the screen and use it as, uh, as a source as well for your audio, off your amplifier. I uh, know we're very committed to our AV amplifiers and we'll continue to do so, yeah. Several high-end amplifiers incorporate automatic room equalisation technology. Mm. For the benefit of those people who are un- unfamiliar with the technology, can you explain what that does? Yeah, I mean, basically, again, at the end of the day, we, we work very closely with uh, one of our, actually, investments, if you like. Uh, we were involved with Air Studios. Uh, we actually founded Air Studios in North London uh, with Sir George Martin. And, uh, and indeed, at that, in, in those days, it was Chrysalis. Uh, last year, actually, we sold our interests uh, in, in Air Studios, and we're not actually directly related to them, if you like. But we found the relationship with Air Studios over the years and to be fair, we were we weren't we were involved with them at a technical level, but way above anything to do with product planning or introduction of product. And uh, we obviously, you know, somebody had the had the sense to see that. Hang on a minute, we we could actually, you know, we got guys there that are actually working on sound scores for movies, Bond films, and you know they're working with surround sound. They're actually working in the studio that Pioneer have invested in now to build to produce sound scores for movies. So these guys must have some idea of what the sound should be experienced like, particularly as they're lucky enough to live in this, uh, work in this perfect acoustic environment with perfect symmetry, with floating foundations and uh, perfect speaker alignment. They're in a very good position to then say how well a domestic amplifier, particularly a surround sound one, can replicate what they heard when they made it. 
So that was the that was the idea behind it was to go to the studio and see how well we could make a product perform compared to the original recordings and the original soundtrack. And uh, in doing that, I mean, to be fair, again, great guys over at their studios. I have the pleasure in going over there and tuning products and working with them. They are very, very knowledgeable guys. Uh, obviously, you know, perfectionists in their art. They're working with top recording um, artists, you know, singers and, uh, and bands. Uh, they know what they're doing. And uh, yeah, that's been a pleasure. But in going over there the very first time, um, there was actually a colleague of mine, no longer with Pioneer, John Bamford. And uh, the engineers almost scoffed that, look, the biggest problem the guy's got in the living room is that in order to hear this right, he basically needs, he needs to start with the basics. It's got to be set up right. Because if it's not set up right, then obviously he's never going to reproduce the surround sound in the way that he needs to to appreciate the sound and get the most from it. Um, and they really sent the engineers away, in a way, with their towel between their legs. That look, you know, this is a real issue because everybody's using different speakers. Everybody's got different shaped living rooms. Everybody's got different uh, furniture and soft furnishing tastes. Rooms and that are different, and therefore the sound's going to be different. The engineers came back, and it was nothing new. People had played about with, you know, measurement and uh, measured adjustment uh, systems before on amplification. But Pioneer uh, actually started then to develop, we call it MCACC, multi-channel acoustic calibration system. And uh, as that's developed, basically, uh, even now on some of our uh, lower-end Pioneer amplifiers, you've got the ability to plug a microphone into the front of it. Um, you can literally go off and have a coffee, put it, put it into its setup mode for MCACC, go and have a coffee, and it will sit there if you want in the quiet, and it will basically uh, set off test tones, uh, not only to obviously decide the size of the speakers, the tonal range and what they can do, uh, obviously then trying to match the timbre and the sound from each speaker, uh, time delay and distance very accurately, amazing how accurate it can be. I've often got a tape measure out, <laughs> sad that I might be, when we were first ever using it, I was like, I get a tape measure out and measure from the mic to the speaker cap on the speaker. God, it was, it was right within, within millimeters, you know, it's unbelievable accuracy of, uh, of uh, setup. Uh, and it works extremely well. Um, as I say, it's very, very good at balancing the system and, uh, and getting a balanced even sound from even a mixture of speakers in different room environments. Uh, and that relationship's continue with their studios. I mean, I know if you've got, you've got sort of, you know, you point to that somewhere in some one of your questions about their studios. You know, that relationship's continued, and that's really what the Air logo is about. The Air logo was about uh, their endorsement of the fact that, look, we've actually bothered to get these products. I was doing it recently with some future product we've got planned. Uh, we go to their studios, we've got sound engineers, their experience, we've then got our own Japanese engineers who've actually made the product. In some places, they've even got their soldering irons and bits with them. And the product is tuned to match and equal as close as we can get to the original sound with the parameters and the cost of the product we're working with. And Air Studios then endorse that and say, yep, we agree that you went through this process and we're happy to say that, yep, you, you got to a level that we think is close, you know, it's acceptable. And they endorse the product. Moving on from amplifiers, we'll quickly touch on DVD players. And obviously DVD can maybe be considered as old technology nowadays, seeing it's mm. almost 10-year-old. Um, how do you improve your, your, your next line of players then to keep the technology going? Well, I, I, again, I mean, we're, we're not planning to wipe out DVD players yet or stop producing them um, immediately. But at the end of the day, the market has moved on. I mean, to be fair, obviously... Now you can get players for under £30 and you can tip them into your trolley when you're getting your shopping. Um, but that's obviously not Pioneer's market, nor is it, to be fair, most of our direct Japanese uh, competitors' markets. Um, but that's how large the market has become, and that's the power of the market. Um, and obviously we're now investing in most of our engineering and resources now being invested in towards the future format. So will we see any more top-end, high-end players? I think the other thing there we've got to consider is the fact that Technology-wise, we probably have got to about the best we can do with the format and the technology that's available. And also consider then that even component manufacturers and pickups and everything else are also moving on and looking towards future formats. So I think we're probably in the last days, if you like, of high-end DVD players. The 989, I mean, is, is our, still our top-of-the-range DVD player. It's, it's a year old uh, and continues. Um, and is still getting very good publicity. It's a very strong machine, um, very good picture performance. You know, it's a good player. Um, 
do we need to replace it? I'm not sure whether we could do much better than that anyway. And I'll say, probably our resource and attention now is going towards the next generation and the next thing. Moving on to plasma, your product line is obviously exclusively plasma-based at the moment. Mm. Are you going to be launching LCD-based screens or screens based on other technologies, or do you feel that plasma is the only market for you? Again, you know, Pioneer have been uh, obviously uh, staunchly behind plasma for a number of years. We, we obviously introduced the, the world's first XJ plasma screen back in the mid-1990s, um, a lead which we've sustained for quite a long time. And we, we've got a lot of pride in the fact that uh, we, we're obviously uh, at the high end uh, in both terms of resolution and, uh, and quality of product. Um, but obviously, the market's changing. Uh, it's, it's moving forward. Um, LCD, yep. Obviously, they're even getting they're getting bigger and bigger, and they are getting better. But then again, so are plasma screens. Um, Pioneer haven't got any plans at the moment to introduce uh, any other screen technologies. Uh, we're staunchly behind uh, plasma. As I say, again, you've got to point out that we we are small. We're a small company, um, and at the end of the day, our production and the scale of our production for plasma screens uh, and the way in which we develop our product means that it really is a premium product. Um, I think as the market develops even further, um, as it did with CRTs, you know, eventually you'll be tipping big screen TVs in with your cornflakes when you do your shopping as well. Um, Pioneer, were never, Pioneer obviously didn't make TVs then, but had they, they were never in that market either. Um, so I think as the market develops, we'll probably end up in the higher end of the TV market. Um, I suppose you know, the nearest thing we can see to that is the same as when it was CRTs. You know, had your, your mainstream brands available everywhere, and then obviously there were a few niche, more upmarket television brands either by design, function or form um, that offered something different I, I think that's the way I believe um, you know, Pioneer will go and is their target they, we're not a mainstream brand indeed many of our retailers even don't regard us as a mainstream brand we're seen as, as quite niche With the, the advent of 1080p how, how, long do you, or how long do you think it'll take for that to become the, the standard across, across the board rather than just the premium? Again, I think, I mean, we can look at it, these things seem to happen faster and faster. Um, although, again, I couldn't put a fixed time scale on it and, and with my pioneer hat on tell you, you know, when, when it will filter down the range. Inevitably, it will do, though. Inevitably, 1080p will become more and more normal. In the same way, as to be fair, we're now seeing the last of the VGA screens. Um, from most of the major manufacturers. I mean, we stopped making VGA screens quite some time ago. Some of our competitors for certain markets are still making them. But as the market demands higher resolutions because of the sources they've got available, uh, now with HD-ready uh, product in the market, with people considering the fact that they may go over to an HD uh, satellite receiver or perhaps they might, uh, you know, in future get a, a terrestrial or, or other satellite services or even cable ones offering them HD in their home, we're obviously seeing the demand for those screens increase. And I think the same will be said of 1080p. I think, again, one of the major keys to that will probably be uh, you know, something like Blu-ray, because at the end of the day, to really make the most of a 1080p screen, at the moment, arguably, for watching 1080R 720p content, it's overkill particularly uh, with a screen of, say, 50 inches, a typical sort of three-meter viewing distance. Um, the advantage of a 1080p screen over a 50-inch XGA screen is actually quite negligible. To a real enthusiast, he might <laughs> argue that it's worth spending twice or three times the money because, luckily, like me, there's enthusiasts like that out there. God bless them. We wouldn't have future technologies without them. But uh, at the end of the day... Uh, you know, and that will be the thing with uh, Blu-ray, 1080p content at 24 frames uh, through uh, an interface that can handle that, through an amplifier that's built and capable of doing 1080p pass-through into a display device that, again, is capable of a dot-by-dot -dot native 1080 progressive by 24 hertz uh, resolution picture should be quite impressive. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, the resolution 24 will be obviously uh, probably upped by manufacturers. I mean, we introduced Pure Drive on our plasma screens several years ago, now several generations ago, which is Pioneer's own proprietary uh, drive technology in how we display images on our screen. And uh, for a long time now, we've used 72 hertz for NTSC content and uh, 75 hertz refresh rates, with the option of switching to 100 hertz if you want to for TV. But we argue that for uh, pull-down from video, 72 for NTSC, 
see in 75 from uh, Powell gives us a far better frame rate conversion and the hence far better contrast detail and uh, false contour uh, artifacts are uh, eliminated by doing it that way. And again, it goes hand in hand then with 1080p for the future. I'll end the interview by just asking what, what technical innovations do you think we will see in the home cinema world by 2010? God, uh, crystal ball. Um, well, obviously, I know what, I've got some idea of what Pioneer plans are, and certainly, obviously, things like Blu-ray um, play a major part in that. I think, you know, 1080p screens coming down into smaller and, indeed, even bigger screen sizes as well will play a major part in that. I think they even even you know something like Blu-ray is going to bring so many exciting new angles to the technology, so many exciting new things for people to enjoy, and connections and ways of interacting with different things that they probably haven't even thought of yet. So I think we've been talking about a multimedia age for a long time, but I think we will see a true a true sort of merging of these technologies. So we're seeing it now with streaming video, with the computer and photography and music becoming things that we take for granted and want to carry in our back pocket and then enjoy without having to plug in. And I think that's really the future in it for me by 2010 is a true merging of all these technologies and, and uh, you know, the interface, how we operate, the graphic user interface and how we use these products. I think we're sort of now, it's just all starting to come together. It's taken a long time, but I think now is the opportunity for it to really start going forward and doing that. Uh, and then beyond that, well, who knows? <laughs> Even higher resolutions, I expect. Uh, you know, holographic TV, I don't know. Uh, maybe in our lifetime, oh, no, I don't know. But 2010, now, a, a better merging of all of these technologies in a much more intuitive way that are probably, again, we'll probably take for granted, but it will be very, very clever stuff. Gemma, I want to thank you for the most fascinating interview. That's all right, no problem at all. The highest definition. This is the AV Podcast. And that's just about all for this week's AV Podcast. Don't forget, we value your feedback. So please contact us either by email at podcast at avforums.com or you can leave feedback in the podcast forum at avforums.com or you can use our telephone answering service on 0208 123 9587. And don't forget about our brilliant competitions which are running this week. You can win Family Guy Season 5 box set, Family Guy The Game on PS2, a copy of Tom Baker's interactive sci-fi quiz, as well as two tickets to the sci-fi convention at Birmingham in November, and five copies of Dark Places Complete Series. Ten to these competitions, just make your way over to avforums.com forward slash competitions. And that wraps up the 18th AV podcast. This is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed, and tell your friends. The AV Podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and Phil Hinton. The audiovisual news was written by John Archer. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Player Review Team were Chris McAnini, Cass Harlow, Simon Crust and Seth Gecko. The gaming news and reviews were presented by Ian Collin and Seth Gecko. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Forums Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.